I'm really excited to be able to speak to you. I really enjoy speaking about mental health. Uh, I'm a huge mental health advocate uh, as I suffered from anxiety for a very long time. So when I get the chance to speak about mental health and things and, and, and tricks and tips for people to use, I always jump at the chance. So thank you. And there's no official start buzzer or anything like that. We just no start talking. <laughs> okay. But anyway, yeah, can you introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and what you do? Sure thing. My name is Dr. Rachel Turo. I'm a clinical psychologist. I am a writer. I also see patients and I teach at Seattle University. I started out focusing on stress, trauma, and recovery. And more recently, I've focused on teaching mental health skills that people can use to cope with a lot of different kinds of challenging experiences from anxiety to depression, and especially this issue of self-criticism, which is pretty common, but which can unfortunately lead to a lot of different mental health challenges. Yeah, that that's actually what prompted me to reach out to you was your tricks on how to better speak to yourself. Can you talk about that? You said that that's one of the, uh, I guess, the the biggest challenges that people face who are facing mental health issues. Uh, I guess that's one of the most common practices that those people do. Yeah, it's really striking to me. When I started out seeing patients, I knew that, well, self-criticism is often part of depression. But what was surprising to me was how it seemed like everybody was mm. criticizing themselves for their feelings. People with anxiety are like, I shouldn't be anxious. People with depression, I shouldn't feel this way. If I were a better person, I wouldn't feel this way. And um, this tendency to just kind of hate what we're feeling, hate ourselves for feeling it, sometimes that can cause more, um, that can be more painful than the actual feeling itself. Like if we just mm -hmm. let ourselves feel a little bit worried or sad without thinking that, okay, I'm terrible for feeling this way or there's something awful wrong with me. And in part, you know, I think we have a weird mental health structure where um, mental health issues are more continuous, kind of like blood pressure. Like there's a point where we say high blood pressure, but it's like a range. But somehow I think we have this sense that in terms of mental health, we're either like totally fine, completely healthy, zero problems, or else we're like completely messed up and like have this like disorder. But the evidence doesn't suggest that. It suggests that mental health is much more fluid. These diagnoses are convenient for insurance and billing purposes. But in terms of the actual lived experience, I think that we need to treat being human as kind of a normal challenging thing that you're going to have all these difficult feelings. Some people are going to feel anxious. Some people are going to feel um, angry sometimes and, you know, it's often a mix, but absolutely there's different ways that you can learn how to talk to yourself. Just because you've always been self-critical doesn't mean that you have to be that way forever. This podcast episode is brought to you by Signature Touch. Signature Touch is veteran owned and operated and it was started by my wife and myself with a mission to provide the highest quality all-natural skincare products made from ethically sourced ingredients. 
We have body butters, lip balms, and deodorants. And the best part is you could use it on yourself and they're safe for everyone in the family, including your children. My wife's favorite body butter is Bernilla. It's made with bergamot and vanilla botanical extract. People say it smells like key lime pie. My favorite is Lavincense. It's made with lavender essential oil and frankincense. It makes your skin feel so nourished, but it's also good on bug bites and rashes. Check us out today. The website is OurSignatureTouch.com. Use code JLA to receive 10% off your first purchase. The website, it's OurSignatureTouch.com. Where does this come from in humans? At what point did mental health become a topic of discussion? Is there any other uh, creature on the planet that has mental health issues? Are we the only ones? No, we're not the only ones. Um, we learn from experiences. So if you take an animal and you put them in an environment that's unsafe, that animal is going to, you know, develop anxiety and be on the lookout for um, stressful things in the environment because our brains learn. So if you've been in an environment where you've been bullied, if you've learned that people aren't safe or they're going to, you know, pick on you, then um, you kind of start to have those antenna up and they can become really powerful. Like, okay, what are the possible threats in the environment? And that can be helpful for survival. Like, you know, if you think about um, uh, military members coming back from dangerous places, kind of learn to um, keep their guard up, but it can be a really stressful way to live. Hmm. So we almost have to like uncondition what we've learned about other people and ourselves like we might have been told that we don't look right or there might have been that mean kid or a mean teacher who told us something. And some people have abusive relationships from their parents or um, from a partner they've had. And we just kind of soak that up and turn it against ourselves. Unfortunately, that's what our brains do unless we kind of nudge them in a different direction. Yeah, that self-criticism is really fascinating to me because I am a person that struggles with self-criticism a lot. I always think that I could be doing something better. I'm pretty hard on myself. But at some point, that is also beneficial for people too, right? It's not only negative. Do you think like these extreme sports athletes or these musicians that struggle with some of these mental issues or self-criticism, do you think that allows them to reach a potential that others wouldn't if they didn't have this trait about them? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think there are some differences. Maybe some people, you know, feel really motivated by that harshness. But um, I think it's the kind of criticism. Like if you think about a tennis player that needs to adjust their stroke a little bit, the kind of criticism should be really targeted. Okay, mm -hmm. this is what's going wrong with my stroke. This is what I have to do a little bit differently. It's not saying, oh, I'm just a terrible tennis player. I'm never going to win a game again. I'm awful because that would just lead you to stop trying, right? So I think too, like we have this idea, we all want to improve ourselves maybe in different ways and that could be a healthy thing. But if it stops getting really like beating yourself up and thinking that you're terrible because of these things about yourself that you'd like to improve, that's when um, you can think, well, maybe I could talk to myself in a different way. Maybe there's some um, new techniques I could learn so that I could focus on those specifics rather than just thinking I'm awful and messed up. Mm. So what are some or how does someone know that they're crossing over that barrier 
how would you know yeah. what what are some of the telltale signs that you that you give to people that you like this is bad that you're te- you're talking to yourself this way I think most people don't know to be honest there's this misperception out there that self-criticism is motivating yeah. but the research evidence indicates that it's linked with less motivation and more procrastination so you might kind of need to experiment well, let's just try it out for a week. I can go back to being super mean to myself the following week if like I don't get anything done. But what if I try just for a week to um, notice 10 successes every day and just kind of, you know, not judge how well I did them, but like, oh yeah, I sent that email. I cleaned out my fridge, took out the garbage, talked to my friend just noticing 10 things that you did that that went pretty well instead of the habit of noticing everything that you mm. didn't get done. That might be um, one place to start. I call that exercise spot the success. Mm. So you're noticing, it's like a done list yeah. instead of to-do list. And people who keep um, to-do lists sometimes really love that feeling of crossing off the item. And this is like just making a full list of stuff that's already crossed off. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's good. I I don't know why that's so beneficial, but that's like a mental trick too that, uh, that helps so much. I think I haven't met anyone that doesn't enjoy that act of like physically crossing off the, that even if it's a small task, like taking out the trash, like it's done. It feels so rewarding. Yeah, I think so. And it's that feeling, you know, you're not getting full of yourself. You're not saying like, I'm the best trash taker outer in the universe and I'm better than my neighbor. You're just saying, yeah, I did that. I got that done. And sometimes I hear from people that it even motivates them to do more because it kind of helps them feel in the zone instead of like, oh, I'm, I'm not getting anything done. Like, oh, I am getting things done. I'm a person who's getting stuff done. Hmm. Have you heard of the phrase, eat the frog first? No, tell me. What does that mean? Oh, okay. It's, I'm going to butcher it, but I, it's to do the thing that sucks the worst, get it out of the way as, as, you know, as, as quickly as you can. So if you have a specific task that you know you have to do yeah. that day, instead of putting it off, eat the frog first. Like, I guess the, the saying is like, no one's going to want to eat a frog, but get it out of the way. <laughs> and then the rest of the day is relatively easier because you did the hard thing first. Do you recommend anything like that when you, when you speak with people? That's so cool. Um, Yeah, there's a strategy that I recommend that hopefully isn't as bad as eating a frog, (laughs) but it's called um, act before you think. And it's this idea that sometimes we want to put the action first instead of waiting to feel motivated to do that thing. Like say exercise. A lot of the people like want to exercise more, but like you don't feel like it. Mm. I mean, and the truth is a lot of times like I don't feel like it, Um, but I have it in my planner I wrote it down when I'm going to do it and I just do it even if I really don't feel like it because um, I know that after I do it, I'm going to feel really good. It's going to make me feel good and give me energy for the rest of the day. So sometimes like your mind plays tricks on you, right? It can can talk yourself out of doing this thing because you don't feel like it. So if you do the behavior, it's kind of a just do it thing. Mm. You've already identified this behavior reflects your goals and your values and you just get it done. And then you can give yourself, you know, a high five. Like, great, I, I did the thing. Kind of like, yeah, I ate the frog, but hopefully it was more fun <laughs> than frog eating. 
And it's the same thing with like, I work with a lot of students and you know, they don't want to get started on their papers. Mm. And it's just, um, I just teach them like open the word document and start typing some words. And then once you're kind of already in that zone, then you get there. People kind of think that motivation comes first and then the behavior, but sometimes the behavior comes first and then that helps us stay motivated. And, um, and we can give yourselves a lot of encouragement too. That's part of the, um, working against self-criticism to say, Hey, awesome. You didn't feel like doing it and you did it anyway and got it done. That's pretty cool. Do you find in your personal life that working out in the morning is more beneficial for you and sets up the day better for you than when you work out, say in the afternoon? Yeah, I'm really a morning person. Um, so uh, I just, I honestly just cannot make myself do it very easily at 5 p.m., but I can make myself do it at 10 or 11 in the morning. So I have more energy then, and um, that's what works for me. But for some people, exercising at a different time is okay. It's kind of like all about your body. Yeah, yeah and what kind of life you're living. I, I agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm a morning person too, and sometimes I'll try to work out in the evening because of work or something, and it just doesn't go well. The, no. uh, yeah, I guess because I'm creature, I guess we're all creatures of habit and my habit is uh, starting it in the morning. So if I, I know that I have to do it, kind of like you were saying, just get it done even when, and I never really feel like it either. There's not a day that I wake up and I'm like, oh God, I can't wait to work out. I never feel like <laughs> doing it, you really? know, but I always feel yeah. good afterwards. Yeah. Um, I also think that um, there's so much that happens during the day you know, kind of piles up mm. and you can make a commitment to your own well-being and your body before like a million things come your way over the course of the day, that could be really helpful. Mm. How long have you been in the mental health space? How many years? Well, I think I started in um, 1998. So it's been about 25 years now. Okay. So when you started in, in 1998 and went into the early 2000s and then looking at where we are at now, have you seen mental health issues increase? Because that's what it looks like if you read the headlines that we're, as Americans, we're dealing with more and more anxiety and depression. Are you actually seeing that in clinical practice? Well, I mean, it's been steady for me, but the numbers reflect the rates that you mentioned and the a population that I work with closely, college students have some of the highest levels of mental health difficulties that have ever been reported. And that was already true in 2018 and 2019 before COVID. And then of course, um, that isolation and worry and anxiety, everything that folks experienced did make it worse. So I think we're at sort of a tipping point where reporting some degree of anxiety or depression is the norm mm. right now, rather than the exception. And I, I mean, I remember when I went was first studying mental health, there was a class called abnormal psychology. And that makes you think that you're abnormal <laughs> if you, you know, have any mental health symptoms, but it's not true. You're normal. This is a challenging world we're living in. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It actually makes you kind of normal to have these feelings. And then the question is how to manage them. And I don't mean to say there's some perfect way but we do have evidence that there there are some helpful tools to manage these feelings. What do you think is the reason for college students? Is that the highest level uh, in in the American population? Is the the college level like you're supposed to be living our best lives at that time? Like, 
drinking, hanging out with your friends and all that stuff. Why, what are the mental health issues that college kids are dealing with? Well, um, I think that perception is actually kind of challenging, right? Mm. Everybody says like, this is the best time in your life. And then there's this pressure to feel amazing. and Maybe you (laughs) don't. Um, Well, um, you know, people's brains are still developing at that age, like a lot. And so we act like they're fully formed adults, but they're not. They're they're kids with brains that are still developing. And if you can imagine some of the most um, intense, difficult feelings you've ever felt, they're really intense when you're a teenager and in your 20s. I'm not sure I would want to go back to those feelings. And one of the reasons is like some of them are sort of new. Like maybe it's like your first time you got your heart broken mm. or um, you failed at something you really cared about. And now that I'm older, it's like, oh, yeah, there's lots of different failures and challenges in life. So here's another one. I got through the last seven, like, you know, it sucks, but I'll get through it. Mm. But college student doesn't have that understanding. It feels like this is the end of the world. I've never had this before. I'm never going to feel better. So they haven't had that life experience that can also bring confidence and wisdom that, yeah, there's going to be ups and downs. And I, I know some things that help. I know being around my friends helps. I know you know, exercise. I don't want to do it, but it helps me feel better. How do you think technology impacts the kids that are dealing with uh, anxiety or depression? Do you think technology exacerbates it more than when you were in college? I think the research is kind of interesting. And I think we're still figuring out the different ways that technology can connect people and disconnect them. From my perspective, since I'm really interested in self-criticism, there is some evidence that um, the exposure to social media can make people feel more self-critical. Hmm. I think because you don't see the um, the challenges, it can feed into that idea, everybody else is doing great, it's only me that's having the problems. And then you, you just have more comparison, like, okay, everybody looks beautiful and perfect and all their photos, but I don't feel that way. So, you know, I'm a loser. Yeah. Well, it's, it's wild because we've never at, as a human race or population, we've never had to deal with social media like this. And right. I think, and you know, I see it with my daughters too. We, we try to limit them as much as possible, but we don't want to be the parents. Like it's a delicate balance as a parent because when I was growing up, you know, my parents, we didn't have the technology that's available today. We didn't have iPads or anything. Like we had one TV in the living room where we all watched TV, but other than that, we were outside. Well now, you know, every eight year old almost has a cell phone now. So you don't want to be the family that, that, you know, completely keeps your kids away from technology. So you have to balance it. And I think it's something that as a parent, we haven't had to navigate these waters ever before. So we're all learning together um, how to do this. Um, absolutely. And I think that we can, um, encourage that sort of self-awareness, like, you know, how do you feel or where there's these, where are these thoughts coming from? And people tell me, you know, having their kid be self-critical, that's another challenge besides being self-critical themselves. You think that's a learned behavior that children pick up from their parents? It can be. So self-criticism seems to come from a few different sources. There is that aspect of modeling. So if you're around people who are beating themselves up, you'll probably learn to beat yourself up too. If your parents criticize you, 
You'll learn how to criticize yourself or kids who are bullied. If there's um, racism or homophobia, that contributes. But we also seem to have as humans this thing called the negativity bias. So the negativity bias means that we're looking for possible threats in the environment. And we're going to notice those more than things that are fine or amazing or wonderful. And that's good for survival. Like you can imagine um, to like look out for stuff that could hurt you. But it's bad for happiness to have that be your mindset. What could go wrong? What could hurt me? So we need to be really careful to balance it out by um, savoring a little bit more what's going right. Okay, what is making me feel happy today? How can I do more of that? And sometimes people really need to um, be very aware of what's making them happy. Like people think watching a lot of TV makes them happy, but then if you actually like do a really close analysis, people don't feel that happy after watching TV for three hours. They feel happier when they feel like they've gotten things done, like, you know, wash the dishes or talk to a friend. Yeah. No, it's true. We're all conditioned to, uh, you know, sit at a desk most of the day behind a computer screen, uh, behind, and then come home. And then we're, if you have kids, you're rushing to get dinner done and, it's a very hectic life. And I, I like, I personally, I'm on this like journey of trying to get outside as much as possible and introduce my kids to being outside as much as possible. So they kind of hate me right now. Cause <laughs> it's like limiting their technology as much as possible. But I feel like that's how we're really supposed to be as humans. I don't think we're really supposed to be so engaged with the technology uh, like we are. And I think maybe we have a better chance to, to fight off, mental health issues if we we re-engage ourselves with nature maybe that's a like a woo-woo way of thinking but it's just kind of the journey i'm on right now anyway i think that's so cool and my understanding of the research is that it backs that up and you know having kids like sometimes they don't want to go out and do things and you try to be kind about that you don't want to dismiss their feelings like you know i know but we have to we have to get outside we need some fresh air and then what happens? They wind up enjoying themselves, even though they didn't want to do it. And I think adults are the same way. Sometimes we got to do a little push yeah. and make ourselves do things. And it winds up benefiting our mental health. Is that something that you recommend when you work with folks is to limit the yeah. the technology aspect of it? Well, some people can't really. I mean, it, sadly, you know, folks have jobs sometimes where you're on Zoom meetings all day. And what can you do? You have to get really creative, I think. I remember when I was working for the um, Veterans Affairs Department, my my job started at 8 a.m. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at by 5 p.m., I was too tired to exercise. And I really had to figure out, like, well, how am I going to take care of my mental health? And I got a little creative. I had to sleep in my workout clothes. So I was all ready to go. My bag was already packed. So in the morning, I'm just like focused on like getting up and getting to the gym. And then I felt so much better, but I had to really sort of problem solve. Okay. How can I fit this in and how am I going to do it? And I I really feel that most of our um, structures now, like if you have full-time work and you have full-time kids, you know, obviously if you have kids in your house, it's like, well, how am I going to fit this in? What 
And it doesn't have to be an hour, right? Like what is a way that I could pay attention and take care of my body for 10 minutes that would feel good to me? And there might be some sort of creative solution. Maybe you could do one of your meetings as an audio meeting, right? Like phone talk, like as you walk. And I remember my graduate advisor did all of her meetings with her students as walking meetings. She walked like five hours a day. (laughs) She was like fantastically healthy. And it was fun to have a meeting like that. No, that's really interesting. You sleeping in your, your workout clothes is a good idea too, for people that that's like one, that's almost like putting, I've heard people put their phones in the restroom or in a room uh, that's not next to their bedstand. That way, when the alarm goes off, it makes them get up to go. Now they could, you know, easily put their phone on snooze and get back in the bed. But since they're up, they're more than likely going to stay up. Yeah, I think that you can have a lot of these um, nudges, like just little routines that remind you that you're not a robot. Okay, so you have to figure out some way that you can care for yourself, even if you have a demanding job and family life. What was the inspiration for the book? You've how many books have you written? I know you've written one, but have you yeah, multiple? I have two books. Okay. Yeah, the first book is called Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD. And so there's different kinds of approaches for handling feelings related to stress and trauma. And the second book called The Self-Talk Workout really addresses this issue of self-criticism, which is kind of like the smoking of mental health. It affects everything. So I was really interested, what are some of the most effective strategies to meaningfully change the self-critical talk in your head and make it more encouraging and healthy? Do you, how do you operate on your, like in your daily life? Do you still find yourself sinking into the the bad habits of self-criticism or are you always uh, kind of more positive on, on your, uh, in your mental health or your self-talk? I'm definitely not 100%, but I'm really aware of critical thoughts when it happen, when they happen, and I don't feel like I get lost in them. I have some tools that um, help me get unstuck. I also have practices that cultivate a lot of kindness and friendliness towards myself. Like the first exercise I describe in the book is um, a breath where I say to myself, inhale, my friend exhale my friend Mm. and just that simple moment of taking a breath while you call yourself a friend it only takes a second but it can set a tone that's this like friendly way of relating to yourself no matter what you have going on what's been the public perception of the book since you released it well i've gotten to connect with a lot of people which i really like um I've had people write to me and say that they find the practices helpful. I've gotten to speak at some different universities and other kinds of meetings. I have one coming up. It's like mental health for lawyers. Oh, wow. I like learning about, well, how do these skills work for different people in different contexts, like different kinds of jobs? And then, you know, sometimes people talk about combining my skills with another skill they like, or they have a variation, a twist that works for them. And and I think that's really neat because everybody's a little bit different. And the reason why I talk about six different self-talk skills in the book is because the one I like best might not be the one that you like best and you might want to do it a little bit differently and that's okay. 
That's got to be so gratifying for you know you to get these these letters from folks or emails from from people saying that you've helped them. Uh, is it how does that make you feel? Like whenever you yeah. you you publish this work, it. you know. I love it. It feels amazing. It's a great thing to connect on. Um, I think self talk can feel really lonely. We're the only ones who live inside our head, right? So it can feel like I'm the only one struggling with this issue. But I already knew from my own work with students and patients that this is pretty common. And I like that people are talking about it, that it becomes not like, okay, my own shameful problem to work on my self-talk, but this kind of like human thing that, okay, I I relate to myself in this one way because that's my habit, but it doesn't have to be my habit forever. I can build a new habit. Has there been any research conducted like, on people back in the pilgrim days or, uh, you know, ancient civilizations on their self-talk or like looking through their writings. Like I'm curious, you know, people that journaled back then, did they journal like negatively about themselves or was it positive? Like what did that look like? Well, people have been reflecting um, about themselves from, for, you know, hundreds of years. And I think that it's interesting to look at some practices in history that um, reflect those, that idea of tuning into yourself and noticing what, what's there, what emotions are there and how you're thinking about yourself. Um, In the Catholic tradition, there's a practice called the examen examine where you're basically kind of examining your thoughts and your actions. Hmm. So that's existed for hundreds of years. Um, And then I think that the meditation traditions are fascinating because some of these meditation practices came from this idea of what's going on in my mind? How am I thinking about things? And then can I change the way that I'm thinking about things to be more in line with my ethics, what I think is right, and to help be more enlightened. And I think that's just a fascinating question and that it led to a lot of different experimentation. How can I handle every moment, every breath, and is it possible to practice handling it in a different way? Hmm. It's It's a workout. Right. So you wouldn't just like do a single exercise one time at the gym and be like, oh, now this muscle group is awesome. Right. <laughs> like It takes some repetition and practice. But if you train your mind, just like you train your muscles in a different way with lots of reps over several weeks and months, you can have different thought patterns than if you didn't do that work. That's interesting. Those examples that you listed involve us being alone with our own thoughts. And maybe that's what we're not very good at these days. We're not ever really alone. Even when we think we're alone watching TV, that's really not being alone with ourselves. We're not doing like that internal uh, reflection that you were talking about. Yeah, it can be really weird at first. Yeah. I love hearing my students talk about it. My college students, like one person wrote, um, you know, when I'm on my phone, an hour can go by and feel like a minute. 
right? You can just scroll and you, it's easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's super easy. But sitting still for five minutes, that feels like an hour without <laughs> her phone. Yeah. No, it's, um, I have a Garmin watch. So I do those uh, every now and then. I try to do it at least twice a week, those box breathing exercises. Oh. Um, cool. And that's my form of, I haven't really got into meditation, but that's my form of internal reflection, I guess. And I do it. And it feels like I'm there for 45 freaking minutes. But by the time I like look at my watch, I'm like, oh, you've been doing this for six minutes. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it does. And it's very uncomfortable. It's not a it's not a normal thing. Even journaling, like I think journaling is a little easier, like writing your thoughts down. But actually sitting still in a quiet room and listening, trying to, uh, I guess, drown out the noise and, and really reflect on yourself. That's not an easy task to do. Yeah, I think it can be really helpful to have a specific structure. So like you shared with the box breathing technique, you know, if you're thinking about breathing in a certain way, I think that's easier than just like trying to push all your thoughts away. That doesn't really seem to work for most people. So it's nice to have an object of focus, like tuning into your breath or um, another a very well-established technique is to repeat certain phrases. Hmm. It's called um, metta or loving kindness meditation. Like, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? And to do that as you breathe and to, when your mind goes away, you just bring it back to either the breath, if you're focusing on the breath or the phrases. And that way you have an anchor. You're not just like, oh, what's going on with my mind? Because, I mean, we'll all get lost pretty much if we do that. But if you have something to um, refocus, that's a really great rep. It's like um, that's what really trains your mind. So people think that to meditate, often people have this idea that it's like you got to stay focused 100%. And if your mind goes away, you failed. Mm. But that's a misperception because part of the workout is that your mind does go away and you bring it back and it goes away and you bring it back and it goes away and you bring it back and it goes away and you bring it back. And the process of noticing that it went away and you brought it back without with as little judgment as possible, just like, oh, my mind went away, back to the breath or back to the phrase. That is really good for your mind because then in your normal life, if you find yourself going down some rumination, train of thought, you know, telling yourself stories about what might happen, you still have that skill. Oh, I can bring my mind back to what I want to focus on. I practiced that, mm. you know, in my meditation, I got strong doing that. So it's not just about maintaining focus, but cultivating the ability to shift your mental focus. That's an excellent point. Uh, and that's that exercise, even can create some self-criticism like you were saying, because I'm like, Oh dang it. I'm so, I can't say focus for anything, but it's, I didn't look at it as, um, I guess I need to change my perception on it. And other people can too. It was like, it's okay. As long as you can recognize it and bring it back, it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's bad, but that's how my brain works. My brain works is like, I'm going to sit here for 15 minutes. I'm going to just be one with the, the world. And then if I, if I, uh, if I move outside of that in six minutes and I'm like, oh, dang it, I failed again. I'll try again tomorrow, I guess, you know? Right. So I'm suggesting a totally different way of looking at it where um, the more reps that you need, you need to have distraction. 
because without distraction, you can't practice returning your mind mm. and returning your mind without judging it is super valuable. So if you have to do it a hundred times in five minutes, that's a hundred reps. You're getting stronger at returning your mind. So uh, I think that it's really neat and it's a good opportunity. So that, that distraction is actually an opportunity. Another uh, opportunity you have with that distraction. How about this workout? How gently and kindly can I return my mind mm. when I lose focus? Can I do it with the least amount of judgment or frustration possible? And I think expecting zero judgment is hard, especially if you have that idea that you wanted to like, you know, be in the zone or something. But what if I practice my reps? What if I practice a new focus to try to have as little judgment as possible? Then you're training yourself to beat up on yourself less. And that's also a very valuable kind of mental training. Yeah. No, that's really good. Do you, is there a negative side to the technique that you, you talk about, like positive, uh, positive self-talk or, or avoiding self-criticism? Is there a, a downfall to it? like creating, I, I guess where I'm going is, could you become like, I don't know what the right word would be, but like too soft, I guess, on yourself, like, oh, well, it's okay. And then become like, like where you're not a high performer at work, or you're, you're, you're kind of lazy around the house or whatever it is, because you just become like too soft on yourself. It's an interesting idea. Um, I think for most people, the habit of harsh self-criticism is so intense that with training, you're realistically just going to be taking that down a few notches mm. so that you actually have more energy because you're not using it all to beat yourself up. <laughs> I mean, so you can you can try it out. But I think that for most people who work on reducing self-criticism, it's not going to go to zero. So you're not going to be like, I don't need to ever <laughs> do anything again. I'll just like sit here because that actually wouldn't be in line with your values, right? Mm. Like that's not what any of us want to do. We want to have meaningful and productive lives. So I would call it even more like than like less self-criticism, friendliness. What if I lived my life being friendly to myself? Like your friends wouldn't say, give up all your dreams. Don't take care of your family. Don't take care of your body. Your real friends aren't going to say that. They might. They might. <laughs> <laughs> they might. <laughs> but if you're a friend to yourself in that way, with that you know truest part of yourself and those values, then it's not about giving up those values. It's about, well, how can I help? Yeah. How can I help you? And, and that's not going to be like, oh, no, you're not going to be able to do it. You suck. Mm. Right? That's not going to be helpful. But what is going to be helpful? And that's where I think you can experiment. Um, and, and again, like I said, with the tennis example, you can, um, notice certain things that you want to change and you can work on them, but that's not the same as being mean to yourself, having that harsh self-criticism that's more generalized about how terrible or messed up you are. Have you explored treatments or benefits around using cold plunges or sauna in mental health? No, I know nothing about this. No? What have you learned? Oh, no. Yeah. So I just um, listened to a bunch of podcasts and uh, I started doing cold plunges and some sauna. I'm actually looking to purchase a sauna for the house, but um, I, I don't know 
you know, medically what the benefits are, but supposedly it's like, um, like the cold plunge, like a three minute cold plunge per day releases all the good chemicals from your brain and it's sustained energy and sustained endorphins and all this stuff like six or seven hours even after you get out of the cold plunge and then sauna has other benefits too and when you combine them it's like a a powerhouse of of benefits not only physically but mostly mentally and um like i said i i've struggled with anxiety a lot so much so where i developed like muscle twitches on my on my arm so we did a podcast with uh uh, uh, my, my buddy's friend who had ALS and, uh, he mentioned just out, like, just kind of just out of nowhere, just mentioned like one of the symptoms was muscle twitching and it was like, we didn't spend a lot of time on it. He just mentioned it, but that planted a seed in my head and I started getting twitches one day, like shortly thereafter. And no, I started, sorry. I started freaking out and it was like, <laughs> yeah. a, it was a dark time. It was a dark, like three or four weeks where I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, I'm getting like twitches. But I realized it was anxiety that I had. And, um, I wasn't really exercising and I would, I didn't have my normal routine. It was like during COVID. And anyway, there was a lot of extenuating cir- circumstances, but I got back on track, but then I started doing these cold plunges based off of what uh, a few, uh, neuro, doctors talked about on on podcast and i think the benefits are there i i I feel like i even don't even need the coffee right after that because i do it right before a workout so it's Mm -hmm. like 45 degrees and then i get in for three minutes it sucks like i'll get out but when i get out i don't know if it's like the chemicals that are coming from my brain or i'm just so happy to be freaking out of the cold but i'm like really happy and i'm like ecstatic and i'm like i'm it's 4 30 in the morning and i'm like happy to be working out and i was just curious to see if you've heard anything like that i didn't um but i i really admire your um kind of openness to experimenting well what's going to help me i think that's a really caring way to be towards yourself instead of just assuming that the way it feels today is the way it's going to feel forever i think it's very empowering to think you know, what if I tried something for three minutes and just see how I feel? Yeah. Within reason, I don't want people like, you know, <laughs> doing a lot of untested stuff that's <laughs> yeah. really harmful or something. But um, I, I do remember now that I've heard some research that um, having a little bit of cold water in your day, like a cold shower or, yeah. you know, at the beginning or end of your shower, that it can um, help with like willpower. Yeah. Like if, for some reason that, okay, if you can withstand this, it's an empowering feeling, but I don't really know about the physiological part of it, but, um, I like it too. Yeah. I like a bit of cold water and then I like to be in control. If that's enough, then I turn it off. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, and I, it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, like doing the hard thing first. I, I feel like mentally it's like the checkbox. Like if I can do this hard thing at four o'clock in the morning, when I get up, then I know the rest of the day is not going to be as bad as this 43 degree water or 45, whatever it said. Like I, I know everything's going to be within reason. Like this is like the hardest thing I can do. So, um, my kind of last question I got is, um, your thoughts on medication and, and people being prescribed, uh, depression medication or anxiety medication without trying other things first. And, and, and I'm a perfect example of it. When I first realized that I had anxiety, the, 
went to the doctor. The doctor was like, oh, you have anxiety. Here's some medication. And there was never any discussion of things to try, like exercise, or they didn't ask me what my diet was like back then or anything like that. So what? how do you approach the situation? Well, um, I like to give patients the information to make the decision that's right for them. And I don't prescribe medication, but I do refer patients to other people who do if they want to go that route. So um, I am a research nerd. You know, I like the evidence. So what I might say to somebody who's depressed are is something like this. Okay, depression. The good news is there are about seven different strategies that can make um, people feel less depressed meaningfully. Tell me which one sounds good to you. You can mm. pick more than one. Um, behavioral activation, that's a fancy term for doing active things, even when you don't feel like it, like exercise or hobbies, planning them out and doing them, just, you're going to do it. Extra physical exercise, fantastic for depression. If you can set a routine and do it, increasing your socializing when people are depressed, they don't want to socialize, but guess what? Spending time with people, people report feeling better. Um, meditation. Would you like to try meditating? Psychotherapy. Would you like to talk to a counselor about your feelings, me or somebody else? Um, Self-compassion. Would you like to do these exercises that change how you treat yourself so that you're kinder and nicer to yourself? So all of those different strategies can help reduce depression. Which one is right for you? Everybody's different. Mm. Do, do people often go for the easy way out? I think that I really have a mix of people. Some people don't want to do medication. They, you know, that, that, that sorry. Um, some people don't want medication. They are hesitant to put something new in their body and they don't know how they'll respond. And some people really want that. They really want to try medication. So I don't think that there's um, like one most common response to that question of which strategy to work on your mental health is right for you. In my classes that I teach, I teach mental health skills at Seattle University. Students try it all. I mean, I don't accept the medication part, but um, when I'm teaching, say, resilience skills, which are, you know, skills that have been shown to benefit most people in terms of boosting their mental health, they try exercise, relaxation, socializing more, doing more activities, um, some mental exercises to treat themselves differently. And then they notice, okay, well, what's, what seems to be helpful for me? That's great. That's great advice. Well, Dr. Turo, I, I know you're busy. I appreciate your time and I had a pleasure speaking with you today. How can people get a hold of you? Are you on social media and where can they find the book at? Yeah. So the book, The Self-Talk Workout is on Amazon and also through my publisher, Shambhala or Penguin. And my website is um, Rachel Turo, T-U-R-O-W.com. And I'm on social media, LinkedIn. I'm happy to hear from anybody who'd like to reach out to see what kind of questions they have and how these practices or similar ones work for them. And it's a pleasure speaking with you. I feel like um, I learned from listening to your experiences and how you're handling your own situation. And I really admire the way that you're going about it. Awesome. I appreciate the kind words. 
and uh, I'll let you know when this comes out. I'll shoot you an email with a couple of links and things like that. And, um, okay. and I could just grab a picture from your website or something of you for the podcast. Yeah. Let them know. So, okay, cool. Well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Turo. You have a wonderful day. I'll see you later. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.